Hello, welcome to Writer's Book Club. I'm your host, Michelle Barakoff, and each month I take a deep dive with an author into the writing craft and process behind one of their books. This month I'm chatting with the wonderful Victoria Perman, who has written a whopping 19 novels. In fact, she's just submitted her 20th novel to her publisher. Victoria also teaches writing, so I loved talking to her about all sorts of aspects of writing craft. We based our chat on Victoria's latest novel, A Woman's Work, but as you'll hear, she also referred to some of her other novels when we were discussing certain writing techniques. We also talked about how a pamphlet in a secondhand bookshop gave her the idea for this novel, and I really love these origin stories because it's fascinating to me how writers take something so small like a pamphlet from the 1950s and turn it into a whole novel. How do they do that? Well, Victoria will go into some detail about that. She also explained how she fills in that dreaded saggy middle of a novel, uh, the importance of a first line, how her readers are a treasure trove of stories and ideas. She chats about her approach to backstory, her editing process, how she deals with self-doubt. And she also talked about how she completely lost her confidence in writing during COVID and how she got her mojo back with the help of a friend, something that I know a lot of us struggled with at the time and perhaps still struggle with sometimes. And just so you know, there are a couple of little spoilers in this chat, just in case you haven't read the novel yet. Okay, let me tell you about the book, A Woman's Work. Set in post-war Australia during the 1956 Olympics in Melbourne, two women enter the Australian Women's Weekly Cookery Competition, vying for the life-changing prize equivalent to a year's salary. Mother of five, Kathleen has no time for cooking competitions, but the prize could offer her a different kind of life. For war widow Ivy, the competition means more time to spend with her 12-year-old son, Raymond. As the women explore new recipes, their confidence grows and they realise that the competition offers more than just culinary skills. It provides a fresh perspective on life and the chance to confront their pasts. I loved this novel and one of the things Victoria does so well is how she handles the two points of view. So if you're writing a dual narrative, this novel's a really good one to learn from, especially in terms of differentiating the voice of two quite similar characters. In this case, it's two women of a certain age living in 1950s Melbourne. So listen out for how Victoria differentiates those voices. Okay, let me tell you about Victoria. She is an Australian top 10 and USA Today bestselling fiction author. Her most recent book before A Woman's Work was The Nurse's War, which was an Australian bestseller, as were her novels The Women's Pages, The Land Girls and The Last of the Bonagilla Girls. Her earlier novel, The Three Miss Allens, was a USA Today bestseller, which is quite an achievement. I hope you enjoy my chat with Victoria Perman. Hello, Victoria. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Oh, Michelle, it's a delight to be with you. What did you do to me? I was up very late reading A Woman's Work. It is just so compelling. I saw every grandmother, mother, all of those generations of women just coming together. All of those themes still resonate today. What did you do to me? Well, I'm really glad to hear that. Because that's what we set out to do as as writers, is we we set out to move people and take them into a world they might not have known about or they that it's so deep in their memory they might have forgotten. And I love that idea that I took modern readers back to a time when women's lives were so very different. 
and even young readers. I mean, I I used to work with a couple of young women who weren't yet 30, and I casually mentioned one day that one of them's getting married, and I, I, I said, well, you know, back in the day, of course, after you got married, you'd have to quit your job. And they said, beg your pardon? Because it wasn't in their living memory. And, and so I like bringing those issues to the fore and taking people back into the past. Okay, all bets are off. I was born in 1968. My mother had me when she was 18. So well, that's young. Yeah. Well, that's that young now, but probably not back then either. Yeah, it was probably still a bit younger than the normal. Young, but, but, you know, it was quite not, not too much. Yeah, not too much. And my mum was one of eight, so my grandmother had eight children. So in my living memory, all of these things that you were writing about, right through from the washing machines to the sanitary pad situation, they didn't have them, you know? And, oh, it was just such, for me, such an insight into what my grandmother's life must have been like, what my mother's life must have been like. And you captured all of that so beautifully. Even the brand names of things. I think there was Lux Soap Flakes. And I love throwing those things in because it does evoke that sense of nostalgia. And, and some of the, because I do a lot of research looking at old copies of magazines and newspapers, and I discovered that in the 50s, Maggie's Continental Chicken Soup Packet Mix had just been introduced. And I couldn't, I was just so excited to know that it was around in the 50s. So I had to throw that in. And Philadelphia cream cheese was around. I'm not that it's, it's a not that we're advertising these brands, of course, but Philadelphia cream cheese was around in the fifties as well. Oh. Cornflakes and all those things that I think we, we could never imagine that they were there. No, it was the beginning of the convenience food industry, so it was. I, I also put them in the book for that reason too. I wanted to ask you where the original idea for this novel sprang from. What was the genesis of the book? I'm really lucky to have a friend who I've known for our, our boys were best friends and still are best friends. They met at childcare. And I'm Sarah Tooth and she owns two second hand bookshops in Adelaide. And I tell you what, if you're going to have a really dear friend with any kind of shop, if it can't be a shoe shop, uh, it better be a second hand bookshop. Absolutely. Um, I want to be her. Come on. Oh, Honestly, she wants to be there too, and she's just living the dream. Aww. So I go to her, she's two, two shops, and one is uh, in Blackwood in Adelaide, and it has literally tens of thousands of books, and it's just my Saturday afternoon quiet time. I'll go in there, and I'll just search the stacks for things that I didn't know I needed or wanted. I'm a bit of a collector, as anyone who's been into my office can see. And she she knows me, of course. We've known each other for a long time. And I walked into the shop one day and she said, Hi Victoria. And I said, oh, hi Sarah, how are you? And she she just handed me handed me a pamphlet. And I looked at the pamphlet and it was the winning recipes from the nineteen fifty six Australian Women's Weekly Cookbook Contest. And I looked at it and I looked at her and I said, Oh my God. And she said, I know. And I said, that's my next book. And she said, I know. So sometimes, and we're really lucky as authors when the ideas just hit you like a bolt of lightning. And that was one. Because I'd just written uh, the women's pages. The Nurses' War had just come out. But I, I, my head was kind of in World War II still. Or wartime anyway. But I love that era in Australia because it's the... It's like a hinge when Australia really flipped and changed. It was the beginning of change, I guess. You know, post-war Australia 
was a place of mass migration, for example. And that's how I come to be here. My Both my parents came from Europe after the war. My dad is a refugee and my mum with her family in the assisted migration program. So they got free passage and my grandfather had to work for a couple of years. They came in 1950. So Australia was changing in all these different ways. You know, lots of migrants were here. The boomers had more income and families were wealthier than ever before, by and large. Convenience foods were coming in. We have this idea that women after the war, even if they had gone to work, went home. And it's actually not true. The rate of women, women's participation in the workforce rose during the war and then continued a steady increase right through those post-war years. And of course, working at class, women have always had to work. They worked in factories or they took work into the home, washing or mending or sewing and I just love that era. There's a growing awareness among women that life could be better because they had had better during the too. When they'd had freedom and they had had income and they'd had childcare. Who would have thought during World War II when, when the government needed women to participate in the workforce to do all the jobs that men had done and because the men were away, childcare was available and then it disappeared at the end of the war. Mm. So they'd had a taste and... Uh, Still not getting anything like equal pay or anything. Yeah. So I just, I love that era. So when Sarah handed me that booklet about the 1956 Women's Weekly Cookery Contest, and I saw on the front page the prize pool, the total prize pool was £6,000. To build a house back then was £7,500. To buy a car was £500. So the prize pool was huge. And I immediately started thinking, if I put women in that era and, give, and gave them the chance to win some of that money, what would it mean to And that's how the, the idea for the book took off, just in that instant. You captured all of that so beautifully in those little moments. And, you know, authors talk about specificity in writing. And I think that you've really captured that. With Kathleen in particular, she has to take the last bath after her husband, her five children. The poor woman, she's looking in the mirror going, my hair's quite lank, probably because I had to wash it in pee. I would never have imagined that as a story. I don't. I was born in 65, so I don't remember ever having to share a bath with anyone other than my sister. But I, I was at a, a friend's book club and I met her book club members and we started talking about, this was after the women's pages was out, and we started talking about the, the wartime post-war period. One woman told that story about the bath. And it just stuck with me. And I said, can I use that in a book? And she said, of course. Her name was Chris. And I just thought, it, without too much explanation, it said everything I wanted to say about the plight of women in that era yeah. and the plight of a woman like Kathleen who had never really had a chance of a quote-unquote career. Her job had been to find something to do to get, until she got married and then have children mm. and look after her husband. And there's nothing wrong with that if that's your choice, but she didn't ever have a choice of doing it. I'm curious to know how a pamphlet of recipes led you to Kathleen and Ivy, these two women, very different women, but both women of the 50s. Look, that's, it's a good question. Sometimes it's like, I don't know, oh, alchemy or... I, I So I started with the idea of the cooking contest and then I, I took that further. So I sort of, the way I think of it is I, I have an inciting something. And for me, the cookbook was the inciting piece. It's not action. It was an inciting thing. 
So I took one step back and thought, what would winning some of that prize mean to a woman in the 50s? And then I took one step back and went, okay, I'd like to do a comparison and I'd like to have two women because I often like to at more than one point of view. In the nurses where I did a sort of simple point of view, in the last of the Bonagilla girls, I did four. Oh, God, hurts my brain to think about that. But I, but I wanted to compare and contrast because, as I mentioned before, there were working women in the 50s. So I wanted to compare the life of a working woman, and that would be Ivy, with the world of a stay-at-home woman in Kathleen. Both mothers, but both with very different circumstances. Ivy has a 12-year-old son. She's a widow. We think she's a widow at the beginning of the book. Spoilers. But she has to negotiate going to work, childcare, getting her son to, to school, and being both parents to her son and coping with society's expectations of what a single mum is lacking for her child. And I, I distinctly remember my mum worked the, the whole time I was a kid. I mean, I don't remember a time when she didn't. And her juggle was getting us looked after after school. So we went to a lady's house down the street and stayed there. So mum must have made arrangements at the school gate because she was still at work. So we were tiny, tiny things. We were grade one and my younger sister's three years younger than me. She's your age. So we were off to someone's house with their little boy. And then when I was 10 and my sister was seven, we, we moved and uh, we were walking home from school together and going home on our own. Latchkey children, as the phrase was in the 70s, we loved it. We got home, made toast and watched Gilligan's Island on TV and mum was home at about 4.30, so it wasn't very long. But in the school holidays, for instance, there was no childcare, no after-school care, no vacation care, so we, we stayed home on our own. Yeah, Would I do it too. to my kids now? Yeah. I, I, I don't be scared witless. Yeah. But there was no choice back then. No, so, there was no choice. We, we had did the identical thing, myself and my two younger brothers, and it was the toast, right? The toast yeah. was the cheap afternoon tea that you could yeah. make yourself. Rounds and rounds of honey toast or whatever it was, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it was safe. You couldn't burn the house down making toast. So that was that's Ivy, and so I wanted to give her that particular juggle, and then I wanted to compare her to Kathleen, who had is is thirty years old with five children. She's on that real domestic merry-go-round, and the domestic world of women back then was, I just think, no wonder they're all on taking becks in the sixties, you know. <laughs> Bix and a good lie down. Bix and a good lie down. I've been bursting to put that in a book in the 50s, but it wasn't, that, that slogan didn't come until the 60s. Okay. That's how it killed me. Just the washing and just, I, as I was writing it, I was thinking about the clothes we wear today where we can throw them in the washing machine and the dryer and fold them and they're done. But back then, that we didn't have the fabrics. There weren't the synthetic fabrics, so everything was cotton and wool and needed ironing and Imagine drying woolen jumpers in Melbourne in the middle of winter. So just that alone. And the old mangle, I, I, I can't remember that we had a mangle. I remember a twin tub. But my, uh, my godmother had a mangle mm. at the top of the washing machine, and I was scared to death of it. Yeah. I think that as children we were told, don't touch it, you can get your fingers stuck in it. So I, I figured it was this animate object that might take my fingers. So. What is so... For listeners that don't know, that was sort of like a, a giant pasta machine. So you put yes. the clothes through it and turned it. 
and it wrung the water out of the clothes. Yeah. And then it drew, so it was on top of the washing machine. So all the water would run back into the machine. Exactly. So that was my thinking about coming to those two characters with, mm. with very different experiences in the 50s. Mm. So how did the process of writing a woman's work then roll out for you? Did it follow the same process as your other novels? Yeah. I suppose The Nurses War and this book were easier in the sense that I had a time frame to work to. The Nurses War was set against the events of World War One, So I had a scaffold of, for those who don't know, it, it's set in a hospital in England, but it's an Australian hospital, so it's staffed by Australians. Nurses and doctors went over to work in it during World War One, And so I had the events of Gallipoli, the battles at Ypres, Armistice, and then the end of the war, and, and other times in between. But, but that's basically, so I knew I had about three and a half years to fill in because the, the nurses and doctors didn't go over till 1915. So I had that as a basic scaffold, and I knew I had to end the book when the war ended. With this one, I knew the, when the contest ended, and it ended in September 1956. So I opened in July, ended in September. So my time frame was quite short, and that was okay because I think of this as a, you know, the nurses' war was big in scope, and this one is quite interior, and it's quite in the heads of the two women. It's set in Melbourne. They don't, most of it is domestic, on purpose, really. So I, I knew I had that time frame. So I wanted the characters to enter the competition. And so I looked at some of the recipes in the winning recipe book and chose some recipes. I thought it would be fun to include them in the book and have some cooking disasters as well. And Ivy is, is, has more cooking disasters because she's, she's lost all interest in cooking. She just doesn't have the time. It's baked beans on toast for her son, Raymond, and she's happy with toast. And Kathleen has just lost all her energy for doing anything in the kitchen because the husband is not interested in trying anything new. Her kids will eat anything and she's just tired. So I, I created the device that her mother sees that she's struggling and says, let's cook together. And her mother then comes over once a week. And it's really more, more about them spending time together, but they start cooking things together. So I, I knew I had those set pieces, like they would try the recipes and then I knew that they would enter the contest and the, the winners would be announced, you know, towards the end of the book. But it's often, even if you know how a book's going to end, it's what you do with characters in the middle. That's the hard slash interesting part of, of what we do. So I wanted to give them experiences that I thought might resonate for characters in that era. And I, and I created backstories for them because no character just emerges on the page. You know, they have a history and Kathleen has a loss in her family from the war and there's a question about how Ivy has come to be a single mother in the first place. But I, and I think that, you know, the war still was like a big cloud on the lives of the people of the fifties, because for those who'd lost someone, 10 years, isn't a long time to, to grieve. And there were food rations still in place up until the fifties. So it, people were still connected to it. And so I wanted to give the reader that feeling as well. So, Talking about the timeframes, if you didn't have an event-based timeframe like the World War or the Women's Weekly, do you still tend to generally try and work within a timeframe? Does that give you some scaffolding for the story? No, not really. Not really. I'm, a, I'm a real pantser, actually. You? I kind of, the, the things that I put Kathleen and Ivy through, I didn't know at the beginning of the book. And 
they have a short attention span. If I was to plot out a book like plotters do, and I, I admire it, it would feel like a chore to me. And I, I tried it when I've been really busy and writing. I, at one stage, I wrote three books a year, and I had to give myself some plotting. They were shorter books, they were 50,000 words rather than full length. I had to give myself some plotting assistance because I, I didn't want to repeat myself, for example. So that kind of helped. But then I got to the screen each day and thought, oh, now I've got to write that scene. Just didn't feel fresh. I don't know. It's just the way my brain works. So I, can't, I always know the end, but I don't know the middle. And that keeps me interested as well. A tip for writers as well, I think, and I found it really useful. People don't live in a vacuum. So there are seasons, there are celebrations, and it can be really useful if you're just in that saggy middle that we all worry about as authors is to say, well, these are people with birthdays and seasons and maybe Christmas or Hanukkah or Independence Day or Australia Day. Or If you throw in an, a celebration, it's often a great way to have your characters be forced together if you... You know, forced proximity is a fantastic tool for a romance, for example. So think of all those things. So they can provide a, a, a rough scaffold for you. You don't have to say it's Australia Day 2021. You can just say it's Australia Day or New Year's. New Year's is great because there's always a party and kissing. <laughs> or maybe not. So I, I do try to, and even a character's birthday can be a useful device, a, a plot device. And in the book I've just submitted, in the second chapter, my character is 50 years old, which she's just turned 50. And I wanted to make a real point of the fact that she's a spinster who's 50 in 1956. Spoiler, this next book is set the same year as a woman's work. And so I thought, well, how do I make a point of that? Oh, it's her birthday. So there's a birthday party. And we then get to see the people in her life. Yeah. And, we, and we get to then, I can then reflect on her feelings about turning 50 and perhaps the things she regrets and the things she's, she feels she might have missed out on. So it can be useful, those signposts, I guess, about time. Yeah, and often at those celebrations, in inverted commas, uh, they are ripe for conflict, aren't they? Especially oh. Christmas. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes. So we can see our characters dealing with conflict and, and yes. we can see that what the stakes are between characters and what have you. Exactly. I did read some advice once uh, in terms of romance. Don't have your characters eating dinner together unless there's something else going on. If it's a pleasant dinner together, it's boring as batshit. But if they're having a fight, dinner can be loaded, you know. So make sure it's there for a reason to show something else. So when you sat down to write a scene in a woman's work, where did your brain go? Like, did you sit down and go, right, this needs to happen? Or today I'm on Ivy or today I'm on Kathleen. What happens then? Yeah, so I do alternate chapters, and what I do, if I'm writing, like the book opens with Kathleen, and then we have Ivy, and then back to Kathleen, what I would do if I was writing a Kathleen chapter, so I'd go back and read the previous Kathleen chapter, so I kind of was in her head a bit, but I always had to think, how do I want to advance the story? What does this scene need to do? And because I had that, as I said, the scaffold of the competition and the testing of the, like making the recipes, I kind of thought, okay, I think once they'd come to that decision themselves, they're going to enter the competition. First, I wanted to set up why they would want to enter and gave them each a reason to. Kathleen's mother convinces her because her mother can see she's struggling and needs to find her love back for cooking. 
and nurturing, and that's really what it is, nurturing her family. And Ivy's son, Raymond, wants to have a TV. He's desperate for a TV. And she decides that because he's an only child and he doesn't have a father, she wants to do this for him. He's missed out on so much. So that's why she, despite not really being a cook, decides that they'll enter the competition, but they'll do it together. So it's something she can then spend time with Raymond as well. So then I had the entries of the cooking contest, but I couldn't, I had to be really careful not to have the same sorts of scenes. I mean, if you have, and and this is the thing, and I do tutoring and I do workshops with aspiring writers and always say each chapter has to advance the action of the book. So if one of them was cooking, I didn't want to repeat the same kind of cooking scene for the for the other. I had to make sure that I didn't, you know, you don't, you, one scene where your character says, okay, I'm measuring out the flour and the sugar and cracking the egg. That's okay for that scene, but you can't then have them entering the contest with another recipe and saying, okay, now I'm measuring out the sugar and the egg. And you might have them then eating the uh, results of their cooking adventures. And then you might have them taking the, the results to work as Ivy did, you know. So you still advance the story with the cooking as the theme and the recipes as the theme, but every paragraph has to advance the story in some way. It's a bit instinctive to me, I have to say. I'm, I didn't study writing. I'm a journalist by training. But so I always learned to be economical with language. And, and the challenge in the early days was to be less economical. So I was a radio journalist as well, and TV oh, journalist. Right. So, you know, you learn to tell a story in 30 seconds or 45 seconds. Talk about economy of words. Yes, that's right. So I still am quite a sparse writer. I'm not super flowery, and that's just my style, my voice. But I, I always think, what is going to happen next? And part of the fun of that for me, because I'm a pantser, is to sit down and think, okay, it's Kathleen's turn. What's going to happen now? What terrible thing is Peter going to say to her today? I notice that when you open a chapter, it is often with dialogue or an action. Is that something that you tend to do? Yeah, I love dialogue as a way of hooking a reader straight away. And I I love writing dialogue. I think the book opens with the word mummy. Yes, it does. And I read once and I've got it pinned up on my wall. The first line of a novel is a roadmap to your novel. I just think that's great. Can't remember who said it. And then signposts are everywhere. So you, the first line's a roadmap and then you put the signposts throughout the book. Just love that. So the first line for me is always, bang, right in the middle of the action. And that's why I used, I, I specifically did start it with, mummy, you know, one of the children's shouting and Kathleen is so tired she can't even decipher whose voice it is. Let's read that first paragraph because I think that says a lot about how Kathleen's life is. You you pack a lot of information into that first paragraph. You're right. It is a real signpost. Mummy, Kathleen O'Grady could usually tell which of her five children was trying to get her attention by the particular tone of the screaming coming from one room or other of the square-edged weatherboard house in Schlockhilda not so far from the streets she'd walked as a child and the frightening and gigantic leering face of Luna Park's clown. But not today. Such a good opening, but not today. (laughs) So with Ivy and Kathleen, they are two women. The difference is one of them is working. She has one child. The other one has five children. That is her work. But you've managed to give them very distinct personalities how did you go about developing each character and what do you do in your writing to make sure those voices are distinct? 
I started with the idea, of course, that Kathleen was a was what we would call a traditional wife and mother, mm. and Ivy wasn't. And Ivy's a bit older as well, and she had had more experience. I wanted to create her in my mind as more independent, and Kathleen is totally dependent. She'd been dependent on her father who got her her first job, and they told her what she should do, and she said, okay. Um, whereas, uh, whereas Ivy had had a falling out with her family and, and had left Sydney and gone to Melbourne during the war and never gone back. So she has a really fractured relationship with her, her parents. But I wanted... I didn't want Ivy to be lonely. I just wanted her to find a family that she chose. And and I love portraying that. She She's a receptionist in a, a GP surgery and, and the GP and his wife don't have children of their own and they're very close to her. And they're like her surrogate parents and their surrogate grandparents to Raymond, her son. So I wanted to create a family for her that, you know, not everyone has a blood family that is welcoming or kind. And we all, we all do that. We find families of whether they're friends or aunties and uncles who aren't really aunties. So I, I kind of had in my head that she was, she'd been through some things and Kathleen hadn't been through much at all because she was quite sheltered. She worked in a dry cleaners for a little bit, but then got pregnant almost straight away and had been home for all that time. So her world was very interior. But I did want to give her an awareness of, as you mentioned about this growing awareness of her life and why was it like this? And I've been so rewarded by speaking to women at book events and they're my readers and I love them. And this is their life reflected in the book. And some of them have reflected back to me. When I was first married, my husband never came in the kitchen. And I said, why? And they said, that's just the way it was. That didn't mean that they didn't think it was unfair, but to do anything about it just seemed unfathomable. It's the other story too about Mondays was wash day. And if you didn't have your washing out on the line on a Monday, all the neighbours would talk. And I said, I said to my readers, who decided it was Monday? They all went, it's just the way it was. One woman I spoke to, God, the readers share the best stories with me. She said she had joined the Navy when she was a young girl. She was perhaps in her 80s. And she said she was shelling peas in the kitchen and she had newspaper out to catch the shells. And she saw an ad, join the Navy. It was the, the RANDS, the Women's Auxiliary, Women's Royal Auxiliary Navy, I think it was called. And she said, I'm going to join the Navy. But she was 18, but she had to get her father's permission because she wasn't 21. And he gave permission. And she was stationed up in Darwin as a radio operator. How exciting. And she, she was hilarious. This is at Victor Harbour Library. And she said, there was only... 200 women and a 1,000 men. She said, we were in heaven as the young 18-year-old. I love it. And inevitably, she fell in love with someone. He fell in love with me and wanted to get married. But because she wasn't yet 21, she had to get her father's permission. And the, all the women in the, in the crowd just went, oh, and groaned about how ridiculous this had been. And I said, did he give permission? And she said, no, he didn't. But my mother said, leave him to me. And he finally caved. But I thought to myself, she was, was working to fight for her country and she still had to get her father's permission to get married. And then I asked her, I said, in all seriousness, I know some women did. Did you ever think of living together? One, so you didn't have to quit your job, which she had to do when she got married. And she said, if we had done that, my family would have disowned me. And the nods around the room told me that that was absolutely that social pressure at the time. So she got married to her radio operator 
fiance and had to quit. So I just got this sense as I was reading both characters. I always knew whose voice I was in. I never had to look, oh, this is Ivy or this is Kathleen. And I think that's because you do a lot of internal thoughts of the characters. And Ivy is much more forthright in her way of thinking and her way of speaking. And even when you get to see Ivy through Kathleen's eyes, because Dr. Watkins is her doctor, and you can sort of see Ivy as this very competent, capable person in the eyes of Kathleen. So you, you captured that really well. And I love that we also got that external point of view of her. I know it probably just comes naturally to you, but when you're talking to writing students and you're trying to get them to differentiate characters, what advice do you give them? It can be hard. When I wrote The Nurses' War, there were five Australian nurses who were in that first contingent who went over to England to work in this particular hospital. And I started off writing five nurses and then I realised I couldn't make them different enough. So I had to bend history just a little and I made them four nurses it became a little more manageable. So I had, you know, one one could be really flighty. He had a fiancé, she was flighty. One was quite religious and stern. One was older and uh, with a really dry sense of humour. And then there was Cora, my main character. And, and that's just kind of enough to give you four distinct personalities. Mm-hmm. And I always say to students, if you're, use dialogue to differentiate characters. If you're in one point of view, as I was at the nurses were with Cora, I differentiated the other characters by what they said and how they acted. So the flighty one just had to say something a bit, you know, she loved magazines and gossip from the royals and things like that. So I, I, I just made sure that's what she talked about. Yeah. Of course, every character has to be rounded, but it can often come in the dialogue, especially when you've got a scene with so many characters in it. I suppose I wanted to make I love a feisty female character, but in the era I'm writing, I don't think it's that realistic to have them super feisty at the beginning because these women were rare. And I, I tend to write, and I love writing about, quote unquote, ordinary women. And, and even though, you know, and I've, I've seen it in the reactions of readers when they've said that's just the way it was. Even though they might have been, might have been really smart, super capable, running a household, sorting out, you know, we know what it takes to run a household. There were just some things they never thought about, never did, because I don't think they'd seen other people do it. And they were just socially conditioned to be in this little box. So I didn't, I wanted Kathleen to be really meek, not because she didn't have, she'd never had dreams, but because they'd been quashed. So I guess that hesitation came from, which is so unlike me, I can't tell you. I'm a total capital F feminist. And I live with three sons and a husband. So I've tried to raise them as feminists as well. But I've tried, I really tried to get into the head of someone in her era who didn't have choices. Tell me about your approach to backstory, because you do weave it really beautifully in both Ivy and Kathleen. And even towards the end of the novel, we're still learning new things about them. What's your approach to backstory, in particular with this book? I try to not info dump, and that can be hard sometimes, but I I read a great bit of advice yesterday. There was a discussion on the Romance Writers of Australia Facebook group. Someone did ask about backstory. How do you put it in and make it realistic? And and Rachel Bailey, who I know is a wonderful writer, said, 
when you add back story, make sure it's your character thinking about the story. I just thought that was the best articulated description of how to drip in backstory that I that I'd ever heard. I do write a lot of interior thoughts for those characters, but it has to make sense in the moment, I think. And do you have it tend to have a little trigger? So, you know, she might be looking at magazines on a newsstand in the street and then that triggers a memory and the yeah. sort of paragraphs and that's how we get it. I do. And I give them a trigger so it makes perfect sense in the moment. I mean, you, you know, I don't know how your brain works, but I can. this is how my brain works, always has. I'm staring out into my backyard and there's a tangelo tree. And I think, oh, the tangelos are ripening. Oh, Helen, who I used to work with, always liked the tangelos. Oh, her mother liked them too, but her mother died. Oh, she was in the nursing home with her husband, with the, the father of a really good friend of mine, Sally. Oh, Sally, oh no, she doesn't like tangelos. This is how my brain works all the time. So I'm, it's like I can't stop it. It's become very handy for writing books, I have to tell you. But it's just those, those tangential leaps from one thought to the other that perhaps help with that backstory. So you're right, there's a trigger and and don't we all do that? I mean, I'm looking I'm looking at a photo of my mum as a 14-year-old with her family and I can see my youngest uncle and he looks exactly like my like his grandson. And so then I start thinking about the grandson. I wonder if he's seen the photo of his grandfather at that age looking exactly like him. Oh, there's two other people in the photo, and I remember them, then Mr. and Mrs. Scholl, and I wonder where this photo was taken. Was it taken in January before they got on the boat to Australia? And I just do that. So it's not that hard to get, to give that kind of backstory thinking to my characters. Sometimes I can overdo it, and I, that comes out in the editing process. But I think we all stop and reflect sometimes. And it's a useful way, as you mentioned, the triggers, it's a useful way to create a well-rounded character because, you you know, you don't have, like Kathleen's mother wouldn't arrive and say, oh, Kathleen, how are you going today? Oh, I know you've lost your love for cooking, but I thought, you know, you want to you have a bit of action in Kathleen's head, like she opened the fridge for dinner and thought, I just have no idea what to call. You know, it's yeah. so much more evocative than... Someone blatantly Someone saying it. Yeah. And then if she's staring at the contents of the fridge, she might say, I can't think what else to cook. There's sausages. I cooked sausages last Tuesday. Is there enough sausages? You know, one of the kids is eating more and more. He's going through a growth spurt. I think I'll have to get more sausages next week. You know, that kind of thing. And then she can start doubting herself. I never seem to get enough sausages. Yeah. And that's how you show us. I mean, the setup of this novel is is brilliant because... You're showing, 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 showing this is what their lives are like when they're opening the fridge and taking the baths and stirring the nappies and, and just doing all the things. I would love you to read a section to show it. So this is from the first chapter. and It's basically, I wanted to capture Kathleen's day. And rather than, you're right, rather than say she just, she did all the chores and was tired. By the end of the day, she'd soaked and washed and hung and dried and folded little Michael's nappies and had bought 35 pairs of the children's socks and seven of her husband's. She'd read stories to Mary to keep her quiet while little Michael was down for his afternoon nap. She peeled and diced potatoes, covered them with water in a saucepan and left them to sit, ready to be boiled and mashed for that night's dinner. A bunch of carrots in a brown paper bag filled with peas sat ready to be sliced and shelled. 
Sausages were wrapped in butcher's paper in the fridge. She'd made all the beds and tidied the children's rooms. She'd picked up her husband's singlet and underpants from the bathroom floor and left them to soak in the concrete trough in the laundry in the vain hope the odour of car grease and petrol might dissipate with a good dose of rinse because those suds really got to work on wash days and left whites and coloured simply dazzling, or so the advertisement told her. Mummy! So it starts again. But, I, you know, part of that I took from my own life. I have three sons, and one day I was hanging socks on the line and T-shirts in summer, like three sons, 21 T-shirts, and I just thought, I am destined to spend the rest of my... Um, they were young. They, they all do their own washing. They're adults now. But I'm going to spend the rest of my life hanging up with a T-shirt. So you're right about showing, not telling, and, and that's something I, st- I talk to my students about now is that showing is much more evocative and it really draws the, the reader into a scene and they can feel it. So you touched on the editing just before. Can you take us through the editing process for a woman's work? My first reader is my publisher, and no one else reads it before then. It's just the way I work. I don't have beta readers. I, oh no, my first, with my first book, I worked with a really dear friend. She was writing to and we, we shared chapters, and she was super helpful. She'd also been a journalist and was an editor, not a book editor, but she had written a whole lot of things. She was fantastic. But after that, because I had a relationship with a publisher, they were my first readers, and, and she still is today. So I write the book, I finish the book, I kind of edit as I go, and then I did two reviews. So I would, I probably sent the third draft is the one that I would send, but I do go back and tighten as I go and things like that. So that's off with my publisher. So my my current book, for instance, is off with my publisher now. With uh, a woman's work, I'd sent it off, I got my first comments back from my publisher. I didn't have to make big structural changes. It's pretty clean. My intent is always really clear and I I don't waste chapters because I'm pretty tough on myself during the writing process as well and that sort of mini editing process as I go through. And she came back with comments. I needed to clarify some things about the legality of certain behaviours in the book of the era. She thought that I wasn't kind of clear about about that. I was happy to just add some context around that. But, but it wasn't a, it's not a heavy editing process. I'm really lucky in that respect. So I get her structural edit comments back. I then resubmit to her and then it gets sent to my editor, in-house editor, and she goes through. And that's probably where the most work happens for me is in that, that really deep dive look that Annabelle does on the manuscript. So it's a bit, I don't, I think we need to have, I think this scene would work better here or this chapter might work better there. It's that kind of work that she does there. And some of the things that we all do about the character's eyes, colour has changed, or I have to be really careful. Sometimes I write chapters out of order and the emotional art can get in, a bit interrupted. So I have to just make sure that's right. And then once that's gone back, it goes to a line editor who looks at the really fine things about grammar, meaning, that sort of line-by-line work. Have I got the characters' names mixed up? And Which I do all the time. It's a bane of my life. Well, so it's kind of three rounds, actually. Yeah. Well, you have written, is it 19 novels? Well, the one I've just submitted is my 20th. 
So that's absolutely incredible and awe-inspiring. And it doesn't surprise me in the least that you're handing in very clean draft. But did a woman's work teach you anything new about writing, Victoria? I think each novel, you started off thinking you don't know anything. Well, for me, that's certainly the way for me. I get to the end of the book and I never know whether it's any good. I mean, I know I've done it before. I know that I can write because obviously published, readers, more importantly, readers love my book. So I know I can engage readers, but I never kind of know if this story is working. It yeah, sounds right. so bizarre and it's not about, I mean, I do have confidence in myself, but it's about does this particular story work? Does every scene count? Are the characters real? Is the situation interesting enough for readers to want to turn the page? So I, I still don't know those answers. And I, and I submitted a couple of weeks ago, my publisher's super busy, I, and I know that I probably won't hear back for a week or two, and that's absolutely fine because I don't have to think about it. It's like <laughs> I've got it away. And I don't have to think about it. Whatever is going to happen is going to happen. And whether she loves it or thinks it needs work, that's going to happen regardless of what I do now. So I'm kind of in that beautiful space where I, I'm just having a little holiday from writing. I love it. So lovely. But do you worry about what the readers might think? Or is it a case of not being able to see the forest for the trees because you've been so entrenched in that book that you can't actually step back and say, wow, I don't even know if, if read, my readers are going to like this story. But there must be a part of you that says, well, I've kind of ticked all the same boxes that I've ticked before. It is engaging. It's got great characters, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, I know. You never kind of know. You're too close. And yeah. because the nurses were, the, you know, the book before this was kind of big in scope and it was really a big book, I, I did say to my editor and my publisher when I sent this off, it's, it's different, it's smaller, it's more interior and it's really domestic. And maybe that was just, I mean, that was just the idea I had. Maybe I was ready to do something. And the book I've written now, which I'm waiting to hear feedback on, is different again. And I think all that just keeps me interested as well. I mean, I don't, who wants to write the same book over and over? So, I mean, it's more of a comedy than anything else with, with of course, social messages in it, which is my thing. But that was fun to write. And I made myself laugh when I was reading through it. And that made me so happy because I thought, oh, I've made myself laugh. Maybe that joke works. So uh, I know I've got the tools, but is the end product a bit like I know how to bake, but if the cake comes out, what if it's not tasty? Mm. What if someone's eaten that cake five days in a row and just doesn't want to eat that cake anymore? It's a bit like that kind of feeling for me. Well, that's a really good way of putting it, actually. What was the most challenging thing about writing this particular book? Were there any challenges that you came across? There were. I kind of got stuck. I got writer's block and I think I talked to my fellow writer, Tricia Stringer, about this too. And I think other authors would probably agree that I think it was a hangover from COVID. We all, well, certainly Tricia and I, and she doesn't mind me sharing because we've talked about it publicly. We got stuck and we just lost confidence a bit in the process of how we worked. And yeah, we, so what Tricia and I did was we had dinner last year and uh, and a, a, another book launch, and we caught up, and she said, how's the book going? And I said, how's yours going? And she said, so we decided to email each other each Friday just to be accountable to each other. And I have to tell you, it worked a treat. So I was sort of halfway through and stuck, and she was about to start her next book. 
and it really worked. But there was just something about the past few years, I think. And I, when I've mentioned this at book talks and I said, I've said, who, who has not been able to pursue their creative things, whether it's knitting or sewing or, you know, craft or gardening or, and, and hands go up through the crowd. I don't know whether it was a collective kind of hangover of just the world shifted on its axis a bit and we all lost our mojo a bit. So that was the hard thing. I, I, I loved the idea of the story and it really, I got stuck. And so did you feel like you just couldn't fall back on that author's toolkit of what, where are my characters are? What's their character are? How can I increase the stakes for them? Or do you know what I mean? No. And I look, I don't think that way about the writing tools. I never think, oh, I'm at the end of the, well, I vaguely think in acts, I like three act structure, but I don't, to me, it's a bit like the way I, I hated maths at school. I can't think analytically about, okay, now I've got the inciting incident and now I've got the end of act one and then I've got, and, and then I'm, I, I, my brain can't work that way. So I think it must come instinctively from reading a lot as well. Yeah. That I know that uh, the story's flagging here. What do I need to do? Oh, of course, someone has to cook something. It's a, it's a contest. So it, I would think about it in that point of view. But I, I don't, because I don't plot, I don't plot against that grid that some writers use and it's really helpful to them and I'm never going to bag that. But mm-hmm. I just have to think every day, how can I move the story forward? Yeah. And, and and I like giving a lit, sometimes it doesn't work and you don't need it, but giving a little hook at the end of each chapter to keep people reading to the next one. Crime novels do that particularly well. So what do you think got you out of that covert slump? You know, it was being accountable to okay. someone else and it really worked. And uh, I just was sort of through the wet going, because I use Scrivener, the writing program Scrivener, and it gives you a word count and you can set it up so that you put in your total word count, so I, I think I put in 100,000 words, and every day it moves you on a little sliding scale closer to your goal. And usually when I sit down, I try to write 2,000 words a day. So I've got, so there's an overall goal and daily goal. And I looked at that and thought, there's no way I can tell Trisha on Friday that I've only written 200 words this week. She's not scary at all. She's lovely. But it was the idea of... She's waiting for me and she's, want, she's wanting to be inspired too. And if I let, I, I feel like I was going to let her down. So I thought, right, just sit in the chair, apply the bum glue, as Nora Roberts says. I love that expression. Apply the bum glue and just write. And because this is, I, I, this is my full-time gig now, I, up until 18 months ago, I was working four days a week. I, I'd worked four days a week my whole writing life. I always thought I'd have much more time, but it doesn't kind of work that way <laughs> because you sort of find other fun things to do as well, like play with your dog and go for a walk. And I imagine, you know, with all these books you're churning out, there's a fair bit of author admin to be doing as well. Yeah, there, there is that. And and book release time is busy with events. So yeah, there's, there's other things to do. But that honestly, they are good distractions because they're not actually sitting down and writing a book. Well, congratulations, because it must be a wonderful feeling to now know that you're a full-time writer. That's a really big place to get to, Victoria. I'm really happy for you. It is. Thank you. But I also do want to say that I have a husband who works Mm. and I couldn't do it if he didn't work. Mm. So I don't want people to think that I'm in the JK rolling stratosphere (laughs) or anything like that. And I do want to be honest about that for 
for aspiring writers. Many people do make a living in this industry in Australia, and maybe they're names that you don't even know. They're not just the Trent Daltons and the Pip Williams and the Kate Mortons and things like that. So many people do. But for me, I couldn't do it if I was on my own. And that's an investment we've both made over the years. We've been together a really long time. So I've invested in, in our financial stability, so I can do this too. But yeah, I don't want people to think that it's doable for everyone yes. because everyone's circumstances are different. Yeah, that's a whole other conversation, isn't it? And our market is small. And at the moment, it's being dominated by American authors. Up until Kate Morton and Pitt Williams released their most recent two books, the whole chart, the whole top 10 chart was American authors. Now, I'm never going to begrudge anyone reading or loving a book, but boy, yeah. I just want people to realise it's not for the faint-hearted. Just looking at all those books on your shelf, can you read while you're writing? It depends what phase I'm in. I can read in the early stages if I'm not doing research. At the moment, I'm, I know what I'm going to write for my next four books. I know the, the basic storylines. I know I'm going to write a book about that. And for the next book, I'm going to have to do a lot of reading. So, but I'm already thinking about it. I've, I've been obsessing about it for, oh, months now, even when I was finishing my most recent book. So, but at the moment, because I'm waiting to hear back from my publisher, I am just devouring books, which are just such a pleasure. But then I'll transition into reading nonfiction for research. When I'm in the throes of getting the book finished, I can't read anything. One, I find it too easy to get distracted. And, and two, I'm always subconsciously scared that I might steal someone's yeah. idea. It's a really bizarre thing, you know, that. Or that I, I read a book and I think, oh, my God, that's exactly what I had planned for my novel. I can't do that. And everyone will think I've stolen the idea. You know? I think it's a very valid concern. And I know a lot of authors feel the same way. Oh, yes, but they say there are only eight plots yeah. in the world, you know. <laughs> And we all know that, of course, you're going to write about that subject in a completely different way to somebody else, but it still can dampen your mojo somewhat, can't it? It can. If you're you're having any kind of self-doubt, it can just crack that wide open. But, uh, yeah, you know, how many friends to lovers plots have we read in romance, for example? A million, but you're right. Everyone tells them in a different way, and that's what Mm. makes reading so pleasurable. Victoria, thank you so much for sharing all your wisdom today. I adored this book. I recommend everybody go and have a read and then come back and have a listen to this podcast episode to really be able to dive into Victoria's process and see how she did it all and put it into practice. You know, you're giving us such insights into how you wrote this particular book. And that has just been so rewarding today for me. Thank you. Well, thank you. And what a wonderful conversation. I've really appreciated your questions made me think about things in my process that I had never thought about before. Oh, well, the pleasure is all mine. Thank you. Thanks so much, Michelle. There you go, Victoria Perman. Isn't she great? I loved our chat. We actually ended up talking for about another half an hour afterwards, and I'm really looking forward to meeting her in person at the Romance Writers of Australia conference, which is happening in Sydney in August. Uh, If any of you are interested in that too, by the way, uh, jump onto their website and have a look. Just Google RWA Conference 2023 and you should find it. I'm actually presenting a one-hour workshop on Saturday the 12th of August at the Romance Writers Conference and that's going to 
be all about author websites. So I'll be going through some practical tips on how to get started, how to create your brand with colors and fonts and all that fun stuff, um, what to include on each page of your author website, ideas for blogging, ideas for newsletters, plus a few handy resources. So if you are coming along to the RWC this year, come and say hello. I'd love to see you in my workshop if that's of interest. Now back to Victoria Perman, you'll find her website and socials as well as a link to buy a woman's work in the show notes right here in your podcast app or on my website at writersbookclubpodcast.com. Now, speaking of podcast apps, a very big shout out to the Apple podcast listener with the handle Porridge, I love that, a perfect winter name, who left this divine review, informative, warm, witty, a must listen. Gosh, thank you. Look no further if you want a fly on the wall deep dive into the craft of writing. Michelle is right across her brief, yet allows her writer guests the space to discuss their personal journeys, learning the craft, the mechanics of writing a novel and the tricky path to publication. Thank you so much for that gorgeous review. It absolutely made my day. And if you listen to the podcast and enjoy it and have a minute or two to spare, I've made a little reel showing you exactly how to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. So you can find that on my Instagram page at Writers Book Club Pod. You know, reviews not only help other writers to discover the podcast, but I think a positive review reassures them that it's worthwhile investing the time to listen. We're all really busy and nobody wants to waste their time listening to a boring podcast, at least I don't. I mean, you know, some people might find long discussions about writing boring, but they're not our people, are they? So we don't mind if they scroll on by. Rightio, who's coming up on the podcast this month? I'm so excited. He's an incredibly accomplished and awarded Australian writer of novels and plays and screenplays. He's also one of our most loved actors who was most recently in a little known movie called Avatar. You may have heard of it. It's Brendan Cowell. Now, I don't know about you, but I was a massive fan of the TV series Love My Way. And that's where I first became aware of Brendan because he not only wrote many of the episodes, but starred in the show. And when I read his novel Plum last year, I knew I wanted to talk to him about writing in a big way. Okay, let me tell you about Brendan's novel Plum. Peter the Plum Lum is a 49-year-old ex-star NRL player living with his son and girlfriend in Cronulla. He's living a pretty cruisy life until one day he suffers an epileptic fit and discovers that he has a brain disorder as a result of the thousand-odd head knocks he took on the footy field in his 20-year career. According to his neurologist, Plum has to make some changes right now or it's dementia or even death. Reluctantly, Plum embarks on a journey of self-care and self-discovery, which is not so easy when all you've ever known is to go full tilt at everything. On top of this, he's being haunted by dead poets. That was one of my favorite parts. And he's unable to stop crying and discovers he has a special gift for the spoken word. With spectral visits from Bukowski and Plath, the friendship of local misfits, and the prospect of new love, Plum might just save his own life. From award-winning writer, director and actor Brendan Cowell, Plum is a powerfully moving, authentic, big-hearted, angry and joyous novel of men, their inarticulate pain and what it takes for them to save themselves from themselves. It's got a roaring energy, a raucous humour, a heart of gold and a poetic soul. 
I couldn't have put it better myself. I really loved this novel and I can't wait to talk to Brendan about his writing process. I urge you to go and find a copy of Plum. There's a link in the show notes if you would like to buy it. Have a read and send me in your questions for Brendan. He's currently in Athens filming a new show called The Castaways, which is based on somebody else's book. And then he's tootling off to do another project, I believe. So I'm chatting with him a little bit earlier than I normally would on July 16 um, to squeeze the, the chat in between his project. So make sure you get your questions in before then. As always, I'm giving away a copy of the novel with thanks to HarperCollins. Entries are now open. All you have to do is subscribe to my newsletter and you'll go in the running to win. You'll find the sign-up form over at writersbookclubpodcast.com and, of course, as usual, all the details for the giveaway are on my Instagram and Facebook pages. Thanks again for your company this month, everyone. You'll find all the show notes right here in your podcast app or on the website. Just search for Writers Book Club Podcast. Today, I'm recording on the beautiful unceded lands of the Garigal people of the Eora Nation, where I am lucky enough to live and work. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next month. Until then, happy writing. <laughs>